Joyride podcast. John is my name. And Ian is my nom de plume. Excellent. Um, nice to put some French in at the start. Oui, je pense que c'est une bonne chose à faire. Indeed. Um, we um, shouldn't really be using the French language because we've fallen out with European. I mean, we've, we fell out with Europe about four years ago, but the fallout felt even more of a fallout last week, didn't it? It really felt like a proper fallout at the end of last week. Well, I think there's borders now. We couldn't have borders before. So, you know, you can't really fall out with somebody when, you know, you can just walk in and out of their country as, as you please. Mm. Whereas now uh, they're the enemy. Yes, that's true. Um, it's very Forever. much like Revenge of the Sith, isn't it? <laughs> You can, imagine Boris, you can imagine Boris screaming at the EU chiefs going, if you're not with me, you're my enemy. That's true. And, well, I, I don't think I really fully understand the whole drama. I'm not going to lie. Hmm. It's become one of those news stories whereby the first page, you know, the front page of The Guardian, I kind of skip it. I don't really want to be, I'm a bit confused because I think for once, and I might be wrong in this, but I think for once, Europe are actually the bad guys. And I we think, might be the good guys. I don't know. I suspect it feels like they're both at it to mm. an extent. I, I do think for once, the EU are actually playing funny buggers about the vaccine. I mean, from yeah. reading into it, we ordered our vaccines in the UK a, quite a bit of time before the EU ordered theirs. Mm. You are not happy that we have as many vaccines as we have when they don't. However, no. what the UK have been doing is they've been getting the stuff delivered to Northern Ireland because they because because of the the trade deal, Northern mm. Ireland is treated as if it's still in the EU. So the stuff is delivered there and then it gets shipped over to mainland UK for the rest of us to get. But that's, I mean, the thing is, I'm saying that's funny buggers, but that's, it's in the rules that they can do that. That's, they're not actually breaking any law there because it was in the trade agreement that Ireland would still be able to trade and ship yeah. without any hassle with the rest of the EU. Um, they're just taking advantage of the fact that that's there for them to do that. And it does seem as if the EU are just being a bit, it's the first time I've, because I always look at them as if they're, like, they are the good guys. And I almost hear like kind of, like sort of, angelic heralding music in the background whenever any of them speak but this week when I was listening to them talking about our vaccines they didn't come across they just seemed a bit bitter as if they were a bit annoyed that for once the UK had actually managed to be ahead of the curve I mean they had to be ahead of the curve at some point <laughs> yeah I mean by the law of averages they had to get something right yeah and I think it's one of those things is that I, I only saw a bit of this in, in, in the newspaper article that I was reading but Apparently, the vaccine task force is run by a lady whose name is, escapes me now, but I don't think she's a member of the... She's not a minister. She's, you know, they, they basically installed this woman in, in to do run the vaccine task force. And for once, they installed somebody good. Mm. It's not Baroness Dido Harding. 
for Just example. Yeah. Um, and it isn't a government minister. It's somebody who knows what they're doing and they've done it really well. And, um, and, and that's kind of, and I think one of the things is, I think the EU are just frustrated and annoyed because their reactions to the viruses, generally they've kind of done quite well. Yeah. You know, their level of deaths are far beneath ours. And I think that they were also, you know, for as much as they've basically spent 18 months, two years, however long now, actually longer than that, probably about 40 years since we joined Europe, basically bending over backwards to try and help us out. Yeah. You know, we, the government, our UK government keeps on making ridiculous postures and saying, we're not doing this, we're not doing that, we're not doing this. And the EU have kind of, or EEC and then the EU have tried to basically manage things to give Britain most of what it wants without causing too much of a fuss. Yeah. And they've done it for so long and even more, they got, gave Boris twice now in two years, they gave Boris deals that they didn't have to give him. No. Because they were trying to sort of think, right, this is the path of least resistance. This one doesn't hurt us, but it doesn't destroy them. So mm. we'll give it to them. We don't really deserve it because they're being so, they think we can't read their newspapers. They think they can't listen to our radio shows. So we'll give it to them. And now they're like, how have, how have they managed to end up in front? It's not fair. There's, I think there's a real sense in the EU that they're looking at it and they're going, this isn't fair. They've done everything wrong for four years and yet their vaccine program is working. I think it's, we were, we were talking about it last week. I think it's <clears throat> given the massive levels of incompetence they've shown since, I mean, for years, but especially since the pandemic began at the beginning of last year, given the massive levels of incompetence they've displayed, it does feel when they're talking positively about our supply and our um, distribution of vaccines, you, we were talking about it last week, you are waiting for the, the wheels to fall off the clown car because that's the way it's been for the last year. The last, well, 11 years since whenever, I mean, maybe not, when David Cameron was in power, it wasn't quite as bad as it is now but certainly the last you know the last four or five years it's been disaster after disaster so when things actually are going well i think because we're actually going to be beneficiaries of it you know we will do okay if the vaccine rollout is good here that is good for britain it's good for the economy it's good for schools it should get things back to normal quicker so i think what the EU the eu are looking on and kind of they're a bit out of joint they're like why how have they managed this we exactly. look, I mean, if we can't even, if they're, I mean, that, that's like somebody with no legs beating you at a three-legged race competition. You're looking at them going, how have they just beaten us at this? Exactly. Whereas we're just looking at it and I kind of like, it's kind of similar. We're looking at it going, how have they managed to actually do this? It's going to go wrong at some point. Something bad's going to happen. I think one of the things is as well is that we don't, I mean, I haven't actually seen, and the, the press have actually done this really well, if you think about it. I mean, the right-wing press that kind of sets the agenda I have no idea how many people were dying each day last week. Um, yeah, no, I'm the same. I think that was very quickly swept aside. I mean, we've passed the 100,000 mark. We but, did. But, like, France isn't in lockdown at the moment. Don't get me wrong, they've got measures, but they're not actually in lockdown at the moment. Whereas we have been now for a month, yeah. and we've got no thought that we're going to get out of it in the next month. No, well, 
I don't know. I mean, Boris comes on every now and then, says, "Yep, yep, it's, it's possible we could get things back to some, you know, we could open some stuff up in a couple of weeks." And you look at the thing. I mean, I, I I don't know what the exact figures are, but from my understanding, I'm going to look up the figures as you talk now. Yeah, I mean, my understanding is that the figures have not gone down considerably, like markedly enough that you could say, like, right, let's open things up. I mean, he did make the announcement this week that the schools in England will be not going back until at least the eighth of March. Hmm. That's another five weeks. Um, yes. In Scotland, we'll we'll find out in the next week or so what's happening with our schools. Um, I mean, our numbers have been our numbers have been going down. The number of hospital admissions has been going down, but not not enormously. Not to the point where you know where we were in the summer, where the numbers were almost zero. Hmm. I don't know. I mean, so have you got inform- recent information for us? I do. This is. Um... From 29th of January. So right. what's that, Friday? Yes. Um, yeah. Right, because this is the thing, is that, and it's clever how they've done it now, I'm looking at it, is deaths, um, latest data provided on 30th of January, so this is actually yesterday, um, 1,200 people died yesterday of coronavirus. Bloody hell, that's a lot. Um, so it's over the last seven days, 8,242 people have died, which wow. is a drop of 5% on the previous week. So That's it's not like a huge not a drop. Lot. Uh, people testing positive, still 23,000 people are testing positive a day. Right. Um, 3,000 people are being admitted to hospital every day. Um, and three quarters of a million tests around about are being done every day. Oh, sorry. Yeah, every day. However, the website now starts with how many people have been vaccinated. Ah, that's clever, that. So so the first thing you see is vaccination. Um, it's estimated our number is now between 0.7 and 1.1. Right. Uh, I'm just going to see, because one of the things is I'm convinced that where I live now is not actually doing that bad in comparison. You've, uh, been, yeah, you've been in a form of lockdown since about July, though, haven't you? Yeah, so our rate per 100,000 um, is now 346, right. which is what it was about July. Right. You know, and we stay fairly stable in that. I mean, I don't know if that's a good thing. I mean, given it's now winter time and you would expect things to be worse. Mm-hmm. Um, but so, that, that just shows you that the whole talk this week has been about the EU, it's been about vaccines. And very quietly, 1,200 people have been dying every day. Yeah. We've just lost like over 8,000 people in a week to coronavirus. And we're all talking about how bad the EU are for not being very... And how great right. the government are doing. It's when Boris came out, when they hit the 100,000 mark at the start of the week, and Boris came out and said, well, it's terrible, but, you know, we have done everything we could. You're like, have you really, though? Have you really done everything you could, Boris? <laughs> have you as a government done everything you could? Um, I mean, somebody somebody was talking about that. I can't even remember. Who it was like, probably James O'Brien. But somebody was talking about that about the we've done everything we could, and then they played a series of clips of things that Boris had said throughout the year. You know, the whole we could just take it on the chin. Um, I'm still shaking hands. I was in a ward, but it was full of people who had COVID, and I was still going up and touching people and shaking their hands. And you're like, really? You were doing everything you could. You've been doing everything you could. And then that, that bit when Matt Hancock said we put a protective ring around the care sector, I was like, he didn't, he didn't do any of that. He didn't do no. that. But that's that's the head, that's the headline of the Daily Mail and the Express. We did everything we could. Really sorry. 
Yeah. Um, yeah, the idea that he's apologizing. You're not apologizing if you're saying you did nothing wrong. No. That's not an apology. No, absolutely not. Um, and so I think, I, I do think there's a huge thing about that. I don't know, was it this week or was it last week that Teresa Coffey or Kofi, um, who's one, one of the ministers, I can't quite remember what minister she is now. Uh, maybe, a, no. She's something to do with unemployment or disability. It's one yeah, of the you need somebody nice and compassionate to be in position. Not yeah. Did you see the interview with her and uh, Piers Morgan mm. and uh, Good Morning Britain, where she, she, he was like, so why have we got this vastly higher death toll? And she was like, well, we, we have numerous challenges in our society. We've got an older population and we've also got a problem with obesity. To which he said, so you're saying that the British people are too old and too fat. And then she was outraged that he would say this and she terminated the interview. She just turned Skype off, mm. which um, I do think is quite funny. I can't believe more people haven't done that. More people haven't subtly, like I've got mouse here, haven't subtly just kind of, without noticing, just moved their hand and just clicked leave on their <laughs> on their interviews and just gone, oh, I don't know what happened. Must have been the I connection. Don't you know what Zoom's like? It's a terrible connection. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, it's... Uh, it was not a whole thing. Like she said... The whole country, basically, she said, like, we've got a problem with, like, people being too old and too fat. And then Pierce Morgan repeated what she said. She went, oh, I'm not taking this. I just left the interview. It's like, exactly. I'm just repeating what you said. You've literally just given him that. You've said, you're too old as a country. You're too fat as a country. That's the big problem we have. And then Pierce exactly. Morgan said, hang on a minute. Did you just say this and this? I'm not taking that. That's a disgraceful thing to say. Terminate. Genius. I mean, that is genius. The absolute, just effrontery to do that. It's... I don't know. Is it, I almost admire that kind of brass neck to be able to do, to to say something as awful as that. Like you're all too fat and too old. And then when somebody says, "Did you just say we're all too fat and too old?" Go, oh, th that's disgusting. Can't believe you just said that. Hang up. Well, it's like what we said. I'm sure we said this last week. If not, we said it in previous weeks. Is we're we're ten months in to this pandemic now, or our response to this pandemic. Well, technically, Cobra were having meetings from the end of January, beginning of February. Yeah. Boris didn't go up to them, but they were having them. So now yeah, we're literally right. 12 months into the pandemic. Mm -hmm. A couple of days ago, there was the first diagnosed case, yeah. like in 2020. So at the anniversary of that. But the thing is, with all the deaths, with all the U-turns, with all the... The mistakes with all the lateness with all the protective rings around care homes the economy being worse than any other in western europe not a single government minister has changed no. not even a reshuffle with no. you know not a reshuffle i'm not even like i'm not even suggesting that you know somebody should have resigned or should somebody should have been fired although they should have yeah just there's not even been a single reshuffle to suggest that maybe this person isn't the best person for this job. No, the only people I can think of are actually the what like there was that Neil Ferguson guy who of Sage, yeah, the Sage guy who was having the sexual relations, and there was the Catherine Calderwood woman up here who went to her second home. Yes, these are two eminently qualified people, know what they're talking about, actual ex people that you would want to have on your team when you're talking about this. They're the only two big names that I can think of. Obviously, Dominic Cummings went eventually, but that was nothing to do with this. That was just because he fell out with Boris's girlfriend. Um, the, the, the two people, the two biggest names I can think of are Neil Ferguson and Catherine Collard, Collard, who are both qualified. And yet all of these other people, like Matt Hancock and um, 
Grant Schnapps and your mate Gavin, Oliver Dowden, Big Gavin. Um, it's just there's just every, every single one of them has managed to do or say something that's just been awful. Um, and yeah, if not not a single. I mean, yeah. No one's resigned. No one's been sacked, and there hasn't even been a reshuffle. And and I know the argument would probably be like, well, you know, we're in a time of it's like war. Basically, you don't want to reshuffle the cabinet when things are really bad. But if the cabinet is, as you know, if you've got pretty Patel as the Home Secretary during this time, when you've got the whole Brexit thing and you've got the social issues around the lockdown, is pretty Patel the best person to be the Home Secretary right now? Probably not. Is Gavin, but given the, the integral part that schools are playing. Is Gavin Williamson the best person to be the Home Secretary, uh, the, the Education Secretary? You know, when we're, we're worried about our future of football, is Oliver Dowden the best person to have in charge of that? Is Grant Sharps the best person to be in whatever he does? Yeah. Well, I mean, to be fair to Grant Sharps, he's worked flat out. I mean, we're almost at the point where they're going to put restrictions on people travelling into the country. Um, and as Transport Secretary, you know, that's, that's not bad a year. Well, I mean, you don't want to rush into that, do you? Exactly. Not to take a um, 12, 13 months, let it, you know, kill 100,000 people, then decide you might think about closing some of the airports and make it a bit harder to come into the country. But the thing is, we've forgotten. I mean, it, the thing is, news has come out, come out so fast over the last year, obviously, because you've also had the American stuff that you've got to try yeah. and somehow fit into your brain. But we've, or certainly I had forgotten until we started this conversation about Robert Jenrick, who... I had forgotten about him until you mentioned Neil Ferguson because Neil Ferguson had to resign because he'd had a woman visit him. Mm. Robert Jenrick travelled hundreds of miles to go to his second home to visit his parents. Mm. And he then went to his third home. I'm sure he did. Yeah. He's got three homes. I'm sure he went to all three of them. At the same time as agreeing to, agreeing to planning permission for one of Richard Desmond's porn magnate, Richard Desmond's new property, um, property ventures, uh, we sat next to him at uh, dinner, then all of a sudden decided to overrule his department and say it was fine to do, just as uh, Richard Desmond funded um, his, uh, you know, funded the Conservative Party. Um, and he was allowed to keep his job, even though what he did was literally unlawful. I know. I forgot. Um, That's amazing. Exactly. We, we also forgot that, that the government allowed, um, was it the Cheltenham Festival to go ahead? Forgotten which racehorse festival was it was now. Things. There was a newspaper story and it was like the headline was, we did everything we could, sorry. Then it was a picture of Cheltenham with all those like 80,000 folk crammed into a tiny little space. In Matt, Hancock, I can't speak, in Matt Hancock's constituency and suddenly Baroness Dido Harding is one of the integral members of the government who also was high up in the jockey club. Yeah. I mean, I know, but we're doing everything we can and we've all done great. And there's actually an article in today's Observer magazine um, about the fact of the Conservatives are now looking at this kind of psychologist work who said that when we go through difficult times, what we really remember of these difficult times is if we came out of it positively. You know, so like if you're going through a divorce, if by the end of it you get closure and you can move on and, and actually something good happens at the end of that divorce, that's actually what you take away with you. You don't take away with the horrible so, bit of memories. You take away is, the moving forward. This is why Matt Hancock keeps telling us the best bit of the coronavirus has been the vaccine. 
So, like, because that should be the end game is the vaccine. Getting that vaccine sorted is the end game. So, if we remember, and we're, we're even doing it, we're going like, I can't believe the government's actually doing all right. And you do suddenly, it's only when you stop and remember the last 12 months, you think of all the things that have happened. And these things mustn't be forgotten. I mean, that the problem is with the, the election cycle, the way it is, it's unfortunate. We still have nearly four years, potentially, you know, nearly four years to the next general election. The, the, the public will have forgotten about all that. They will have forgotten about this. And I, and I know someone that works in the public sector, I know, and, and where I work in the public sector, it's quite interesting because although, as, as you know, we mentioned before, I used to work in education, which is kind of a, a sort of hermetically sealed bubble almost. Yeah. When you work in education, I mean, I know you work with other agencies, but you don't really. No. The 95% of your job, you're in your hermetically sealed bubble. You know, you notice cutbacks because there's one less person in the office staff or you can't get as many copies of a new book in the, you know, the following year or there's no upgrade on the computers. But you're in a quite hermetically sealed world. Now I work in the public sector and you have to work with lots of different agencies. So, you know, at the real crisis point. Um, and so, you know, you need housing or you need the job centre or you need um, the health service or you need social work or whatever. And you see that these agencies have all been absolutely gutted out. There's nobody left but the staff. Everything else, all the resources are gone. So you speak to people and they say, well, we don't have anything. There's nothing we can do. So you go to social work and they kind of say, well, we're doing everything we can, but we don't really have any courses at the moment we can run. Or you know, we just don't have any resources to do that. And then you go to, to housing and they say, well, we just don't have any houses. We just don't have any. Um, you know, I know this guy's going to be homeless, but we literally have nowhere to put him other than in a bed and breakfast, because that's literally all we have. I'm really yeah, well, sorry. Those, well, those same people, when it comes to thinking about voting, think, well, he did the best he could. And the other thing is you're going to have another four, well, yeah, another four years of, and the narrative's already started because the narrative is entirely created through the newspapers, is that, well, we'll need to make cuts, won't we? Because we're going to have to somehow be able to pay for all this stuff that we've, we've spent, and how are we going to do that? The only possible way to do it is by um, cutting things. And so you're like, but this, the reason we're in such a mess, the reason we have is 100,000 deaths, is actually probably not, I mean, there's a huge amount of Boris's decisions yeah. over the last but, year, but, but yeah. a huge part of it is, the, is we've had well, 10 years. It. We're saying, you know, the, the, the days of David Cameron and George Osborne weren't as bad, but you think we're now seeing the seeds, like they're now, they're now growing, you know, the, the austerity yeah. measures that were taken in the early 2010s, the fact that there was huge cuts to policing, huge cuts to the health service, huge cuts in education, cuts everywhere, basically, and just basic infrastructure, so that when we had to deal with this national emergency, we weren't equipped to do that. I mean, you can't help but think, had this happened 20 years ago, when we were when the, when the new Labour government was still in its infancy, and things were positive, and DREAM were telling us that things were going to get better, you can't help but think it would have been handled. I mean, it would have been handled. I mean, I... I, I think even if David Cameron or Theresa May had been in charge it would have been handled better I mean I can't think of a worse person too but you've got Bo you Boris and Donald Trump in charge of America and the UK in this time of national crisis when you need see a, a serious well-organized clear and concise leader and leadership 
that's 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 been our problem in the UK is that there isn't. And then when you look at the government, even if you'd gone back to Theresa May's, at least you had people there. You had folk. You, you had ministers there that you could have looked at and thought, well, he'd be all right. Jeremy Hunt, he'd be all right. Um, you look now and it's you see who Boris has surrounded himself with. It is Pretty Patel, Gavin Williamson, Grant Schnapps, Oliver Dowden, uh, Robert Jenrick, Alex Sharma. Like, they're all crap. They're, they're all... And it's not even like back in the 80s when it was Margaret Thatcher's government. You know, we all... The spitting image characteristics of Norman Tebbit and Michael Heseltine and Kenneth Cook. But... You, you look back at those people and you think, well, they would actually have handled this as, as ruthless and horrible as they might have been in other ways. They would have handled this well. That she would have got on top of this. And she had yeah. people around her who were all competent. And now, who's who's the, who's the who's our great bastion of hope? Alex Sharma? Well, Rishi Sunak is the one that people kind of talk glowingly of. But, I mean, I think that's the thing is I was talking to my dad about this the other day. I was like, and we... we we were talking very much about what you just said there. If this had happened in the 80s or in the 90s, in 2000s, thing is, the, the Tory government of the 1980s were evil, but they weren't stupid. No, they just had a very different way of looking at the world than than, than we did. Mm. And so, 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 don't get me wrong. I think they would have still gone austerity-wise. They would have still yeah. kind of tried to fix it that way after the fact. And, and my worry is, and I'm kind of already beginning to move to that point of. Right, the vaccines are going to get done, and they're going to lift, begin to lift stuff because the vaccines are going to get done. And, and and even if it's a bit longer than, you know, four or five months, it's going to be by the time we get to say your birthday in September. Yeah, life will be. I mean, we might we'll still probably have to wear masks in shops, but we'll be able to meet again. We'll be able to go out for dinner again. We'll be able to you know live our lives basically, but with the slight tweaks of two meter queuing. Yeah. you know, rather than, you know, piling up around each other. You know, when we next go to the cinema, hopefully before September, but when we do, you know, it might be like we kind of do already is two seats and then there might be two seats free before the next person and all that kind of stuff. But we're moving beyond it now. Or we will do soon, even though there's still a horrendous amount of deaths. My big fear though, is that the country is already on its knees. It was on its knees by, after the financial crash. Yeah, It was then made worse by, by the, Brexit culture war, so nothing ever got fixed. And now we've had a pandemic on top of it. And the country is, is, is on its knees financially, morally, spiritually, you know, energy levels, everything. Yeah. And the, gov the, the only government response to this will be, well, we'll need to start cutting stuff. So we'll need to slash this budget here, that budget there, this budget there. You know, there's a news report today in The Guardian, or sorry, The Observer, that Paul Dacker, the former editor of the Daily Mail, is going to be made the head of Ofcom. And which means he will have a huge amount of power, not to destroy the BBC, but he can certainly chip away at it for the next four or five years. Mm. And you're kind of, and Bre what Brexit tells us is, as I sat there the day after the referendum in 2016, I was gutted, but I was kind of like, these things don't really happen though. These things don't happen to Britain. Britain's a sort of sensible country. We'll have another referendum. And I remember saying that on, to my mom on that day. I was like, we're not really going to leave. We'll have another referendum and they'll, they'll fix it. And things like the BBC, now I believe that maybe they could get rid of it. Yeah. They've got four years with which to denigrate it. You know, 
Dacker, you know, sort of cuts at it from one end. You've got the government cutting at it from the other end. You've got two conservatives who are the director general and the chairman now. And you're kind of like, the BBC could go. And then you're like, well, what's left after that, which is the NHS. Mm -hmm. And although there are heroes now, they'll look at it and go, people didn't go out and clap in the third lockdown, you know. There was supposed to be this thing there where everyone would go out and clap. But actually, I mean, have they really done that well? A lot of people died. I mean, is the end? could we do it better? Are there ways we can make that more efficient? Because actually, who's, in, who's actually really in charge of people dying? Is it, is it politicians or is it the health service? It's really the health service, isn't it? They didn't really get themselves on top of that. If there was more efficiency in there, and it's quite a bleak picture when you kind of think they've yeah. got four years and they're, they're ahead in the polls now. Yes, in, in the midst of absolute crapness, they are ahead of the polls. And they have yeah. an 80-odd seat majority in the House of Commons right now. So, so even if they went behind in the polls, the chances are they would still manage to squeak through with a majority oh, of five next yeah, time. A small majority, yeah. So that's another five years after that. And then, you know, what are we left with when 2030 comes around? You know? Well, I mean, the good news for you would have been that in Scotland this week, I don't know if you were aware of this, but, you know, they, we've been talking constitutional matters, especially because Boris was up here. Mm. Um, well, I think you'll find people aren't that bothered about independence here. That's true. People don't want it. People don't want to talk about it. No. I mean, it's funny because the, the Tory folk a couple of weeks ago were saying, we don't want to do this because we don't, I mean, like, we're in a pandemic. We shouldn't be campaigning about independence just now anyway because it's the wrong time to be doing it. Um, what was Boris doing up in Scotland this week? <laughs> I mean, it was ridiculous. I know folk that work in hospitals. He was in, you know, he'd come up from London, but the R rate is considerably higher than it is here. Mm. He was wandering about hospitals. They had him playing with the vaccine set like he was like a five-year-old. Did you see that? They had him like, like, like sucking it down and up, probably wasting about 40 vaccines right there. And then to tell us, like, people, people in Scotland don't want, they just, they don't want independence. They don't want to talk about it. Even though there's something like 20 polls in a row now have suggested that the majority of people in Scotland do actually want a referendum and do want independence. But this week, even better than that, Gordon Brown was back out. Oh, big room. And uh, I saw him being interviewed on the BBC and they were saying to him, like, you know, Gordon, you yourself said four years ago, five years ago, seven, eight years ago, whenever it was, 2014, seven years ago, you said to the people of Scotland, don't worry, it's going to be fine. The only way to stay in the EU is to stay in the UK. And the way things are going, Scotland is going to be the closest it can be to being like a federal state, you know, the closest to being independent. It'll be like a federal state. It'll be an all but name, an independent state. And Gordon Brown said, well, I, I, I didn't say those words. I didn't say those words. And then the, brilliantly the reporter went, hang on. And he played the clip of Gordon Brown standing at a rally going, Scotland will be as close to an independent and federal state as it's possible to be. And he just kind of went, he just kind of like, he opened his mouth a couple of times and then he just started on about the SNP and how the SNP were doing a bad job. And, you know, and that was it. Well, like, I mean, his first time, like, as a typical kind of politician, was like, I did not say those words. He played them back and he just kind of went, <coughs> and then just talked about something else. <laughs> it was, I was glad the guy acted, because I mean, I was like screaming at the telly, you did say that. I remember you saying that like two weeks before the referendum. But they thankfully they showed they had they actually showed about two or three different clips of him saying similar things about Scotland having all this power. But um yeah, I mean it's weird up here because there is definitely an appetite from a, a lot of people I know that weren't that bothered about independence, uh, especially after the way the UK government has handled things. 
And I know like the figures up here aren't actually that much better. But it's just no. the fact they've seen our leadership in Scotland. We've talked about this so many times, but the lead the government in Scotland, the way its messaging has been put across and the way it's communicated the, the issues up here have just been it's been night and day. You watch a Scottish briefing, you watch Nicola Sturgeon and the, the medical folk around her. It's very clear, it's very concise, it's very understandable, and she explains everything and she talks to usually about I mean she she takes questions from about 40 different journalists. She usually gets one from ITV, one from STV, one from Grampian. Then she'll take somebody from the Aberdeen Courier and she'll start doing local papers. You think <laughs> Boris takes about three questions. You know, he gets Kuntzberg, Peston and whoever replaced Beth Rigby at Sky and that, and maybe one local journalist for a particular issue. So, I mean, people I think are just, they're seeing the difference. Um, but it's, it's whether or not, I mean, this is the whole thing is, are we going to be allowed to have a referendum? Wow. That's the language. That's the language that's coming from down south. It's like, are you going to be allowed to have that referendum? Um, I don't and know if there was a thing. There was a thing this week. It was the guy. I forgot his name. The guy that wrote Captain Crowley's Mandolin. Louis de Bernier. That's that. He was talking about how people in England are just fed up now with Scotland. Um, they're fed up with the Scots whinging and moaning, and they're fed up subsidising us. And that there should be a referendum down south to get rid of us. I mean, to be fair, there is a large groundswell of um, punditry. I don't think it's real, but I think it's punditry. I think, to be honest, in terms of this is the thing, this was the thing in 2014. I was, I remember the first debate between um, Alistair Darling and Alex Salmond in 2014, the first televised one, which was early to early August, I think it was. Yeah. Um, I was actually in England at the time. Um, visit and family and it wasn't on telly yes it wasn't on telly we had to get on youtube and put it yeah. put it on the you thing know. is the only no but they only took notice of it in england when the polls closed and there was there was like maybe a week or so before the referendum there was one poll in the herald that actually had yes slightly ahead of no hmm. and then all of a sudden with david cameron ed Miliband, and nick clegg they were all up here promising us everything they made that vow the promise that Scotland would be first at the table, we would we would be able to like you know, rather than leave the union, be equal partners in the union, and then you know two years later Brexit happened, which Scotland overwhelmingly voted against, and yet we still got dragged dragged out of the EU. It's um, and I think that's the thing is England England views itself, and it's kind of understandable that it does. It's not. I mean, it's not right, but it's kind of understandable is that the 60 million, say the 60 million people live in Britain and 50 million of them live in England. And so when England says Britain, it means England. Yes. When, it, when England says, or people, when England says the United Kingdom, it means England yeah. and their views on it and their thoughts about things. And so I would be willing to say that of the 50 million population of England, 48 million people virtually never think about Scottish independence doesn't come up at all. The only way that they only see Nicola Sturgeon through the prism of the newspapers and the radio, which she's almost never on full yeah. wide UK, you know, television or radio, apart from a small clip when she's in a fight with Gordon Brown, I'm sorry, with Boris Johnson about something. Bear in mind, England is a Brexit country. And she was coming out saying she didn't want Brexit. So, so there is a sense that she is, well, you know, what did you know, uh, Jacob Rees call her this week? Oh, what did he call her? Mona Lot. What's that? 
Monolot. Monolot. He said, I thought Monolot was a character from fiction, but it turns out she's the first minister of Scotland. He said this in Parliament. Like, and nobody, like, he wasn't even, brought, like, really, that's that's the level of political debate we've got, is the leader of the House calling the Scottish First Minister Monolot. And and that's where we are, and that's the thing, is that resonates in Scotland, whereas it doesn't really resonate in England. No. It doesn't get no, they'll forgotten about it, but it's, it's like a big story up here. You know, it's like... but the thing is all these all these little things chip away i mean boris coming up here i don't think they would realize that would probably push support for independence up boris coming up here it doesn't it doesn't make us seeing boris coming up and playing with the vials of vaccine doesn't make people in scotland go oh isn't it boris is great putting two thumbs up you know like a like a weird hairy jimmy cranky that's not going to make people want to vote for, for boris and vote for Unionism. No, and I I'm think listening, that's the I'm thing. Actually listening. I was listening to a, a media podcast this week, hmm. and they had it was um, Omar Jalili was on it. You know the yeah. comedian who brought to Lancelius in uh, his Dark Materials. Yes, um, but he was on this. It was a it was a Scottish media podcast, and he was talking about the views of Scotland from down south. And he said, in the last few months, he said that you know like there's been a lot of chat about independence. So I thought. I'm going to look into this and see the state of Scotland's finances because I know what we get told down here that Scotland's this poor, crap little country who needs England. But he said, when I actually looked into the finances, he said, I couldn't believe how wealthy Scotland would be if they were an independent nation. He said, I had no idea the amount of money that exports, he said, it was something he was talking about like shortbread going to America and whiskey exports. He said, never mind the oil. All the things that Scotland exports, like the salmon, the whiskey, the, the shortbread, said there's a lot of money goes out of Scotland and not all of it comes back. And he said, we don't get told that. He said, in our media in England, they're just the, the, the subsidize, like we're the subsidizers and they're the subsidy junkies. That's that is, and it's been, you know, that's been the message from the media for, for a long time. Um, but it's interesting to hear that some folk in England are maybe now they're having to think about independence as a possibility. They're maybe looking at the finances and thinking, do you know what, if Scotland left might not be that good for the UK's economy. I mean, why, why would why would people like Boris and Jacob Rees-Mogg, who don't particularly like Scotland, they don't like the way Scotland votes, why would they be so keen to keep Scotland the United Kingdom if we were a major drain on the resources of the UK? If we were really a massive drain, if we were co costing English taxpayers lots of money, why would they be so keen to keep us? And that's the good thing about this, this, this new agenda where they're talking about English independence from Scotland. Someone's going to have to come out and say, "Look, listen, guys, Scotland actually contributes money to the UK economy. We, we, we don't want them to go, right? They can't have it both ways. You can't be telling Scotland they're too wee and too poor and at the same time saying to the English folk, yeah, they are too wee and too poor. We need to keep subsidising them. We need to keep them because it's good for the UK if we're giving them more money than they give us. So I think... I think one of the things is some people will, but I think that if Brexit has taught us anything, it's that certain people can keep two opposing views in their in their heads at once. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, like Boris said, I mean Boris, the leader of the Conservative Party, the man who you know has <laughs> has said "f business." Yes. Like that, I mean, that, that, that there's a, you know, a complete disconnect there. Mm -hmm. And I think that the thing about it is, is it will always be thus in the sense that I imagine every Scottish football fan could name the England football manager. I would be willing to bet less than 
a quarter of Sc- yeah. English football fans could name the Scotland manager. I mean, at least the Scotland manager did spend a massive amount of his time in England. But the whole but, point is, they would have heard of him, but they wouldn't know he was a Scotland manager. Yeah, they would remember yeah. when he was a Chelsea player. Yes. And he was the manager of West Brom and Newcastle. But they probably don't know that he is the Scotland manager now. Because it's gone out of their heads. Gone out of their heads. They'll think it's Alex Ferguson or Walter Smith. Yeah, my goes up. Is it Graham Sooners? But but that's that's the thing. Uh, Right, before we go, because we should go, um, you've got lives to lead, listener. Um, One ray of light, something positive, something good, anything. Have you read anything good? Have you seen anything good? Have you listened to anything good? Something positive for the listener to take away. Because I mean, I've only been I've been reading old Stephen King books. um, Any of them been any good? Well, I mean, I've read them before. I love them. I'm on my, I think I'm on my eighth or ninth Stephen King book of the. I mean, I've already read about fourteen or fifteen books since the start of the year. Um, so, of those eight or nine Stephen King books, what should the le- sorry, which one should the reader pick up, listener pick up as soon as they're finished listening to this? What should they go and get on the Kindle, order from Amazon, actually order from a local bookshop if you can. Local bookshop. Um, um, well, the problem is, I mean, the ones I like are the really long ones, and most like the stand. I read The Stand at the start of the year. It's 1,400 pages long. So... Well, that's true. I mean, Salem's Lot's really good, but it's nearly 700 pages as well. I think Salem's Lot's been my favourite so far. I read that in about a day and a half. Listener, go read (laughs) Salem's Lot. Salem's Lot was released at the same time as I was. It came out in 1975. Right, so... I feel it's, a bit uh, with that book. I would say the one thing I watched this week was on Netflix. There's a new French series called Lupin. Oh, I've heard I've not seen. Lupin is a gentleman thief. Um, he's oh. a famous, there's, like, there's, there's comics and cartoons about Lupin that go back 30, 40 years. Uh, but this mm. is a kind of modern take on it. And I'm trying to remember the actor that plays Lupin. He's, um, he was in that, did you ever see that film Untouchable? Untouchable. Oh, yes. I know the one. Paraplegic guy. And then there was the young guy. The guy that played the young helper. He plays Lupin. Is it Omar Sy? Omar Sy. That's his name. Yeah. He plays Lupin. And uh, it's it's funny. It's full of twists. And it's beautifully shot. It's in Paris. So you get lots of nice um, architecture. Um, I would heartily recommend that. And if if you can't be bothered with subtitles, there is an English dub. I watched it in French. With the subtitles right. on, obviously, because I quite like that. But mm-hmm. you can still watch, you can watch it in American accents if you want. The dubbing's not too bad. So right. that'd be my big recommendation this week is Lupin. What well, you say? My, my big recommendation, it's kind of a, almost a cliched one for me, considering it's uh, Russell T. Davis, who I love. It's set in the 1980s, which yeah. I love. It's full of 80s music, which I also love, um, which is It's a Sin, which is on Channel 4, more for, uh, sorry, all four or whatever it's called. Um, all five episodes are available. I've only seen two. There's some graphic sex in it, not going to lie, okay. uh, which is unusual these days because often there isn't quite as much yeah. in programs or films as there used to be. Not like it was in the 1980s when there was nudity everywhere. Yes. Um, but it is amazing. It's an incredibly good show. Um, I thought that Years and Years by Russell T. Davis was going to be his masterpiece. I thought that was going to be the thing that he just defined. 
without seeing it all, I can't honestly say it's better. However, these first two episodes, I I'm, think... I've read a few of my friends talking about oh. it on Facebook, saying it's one of the best things I've ever seen, like the complete series. So, I mean, I've got it recorded on my Skybox. It's just, it's probably one I'm going to have to watch on my phone because I don't think it's going to be one I can watch with the kids. No, definitely not. But I can't uh, give that a watch. Yeah, absolutely brilliant. You know, like, it, it, it's just one of those programmes that you're watching it and you're kind of like, you know, Keely Hawes plays a minor character. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like, and, and that's the kind of quality you've got. That's the layers you're going down. Apparently, they're saying one of the, the main stars, he's been picked to be the new, tipped to be the new Doctor Who. Oh, I don't, is it the one that's the guy the young from lad years, The young lad that's like a singer in real life. Yeah, a guy from years and years. He's in the band called Years and Years, not the TV show. Well, he's, like. he's apparently, they reckon when Jodie Whittaker, if she leaves imminently, which has been a rumour, they reckon he's going to be the replacement Doctor Who, so. Well, I mean, I mean, he's, he's, he's very charismatic. Well, he's more experienced um, time, you know, years and years, Time Lord. Sure. He's, he's not like, he's the least, the one I found, anyway, I found him the least sort of likable character of the main characters, which is quite interesting if he's going to end up being Doctor mm-hmm. Who. But he is very charismatic. Okay. He, you know, you can see. So, but um, yeah, highly enjoyable. And in these relatively bleak times, I mean, it is relatively bleak. Like Salem's Lot, it's relatively bleak. Um, my week, um, my week, my week of reading. I started mm-hmm. with Salem's Lot, then I moved on to The Shining, which, in a time of isolation, that's a hard book to read because it's complete. The family are completely isolated, and the dad goes mental and tries to kill everybody. Mm. Um, I then read The Dark Tower, which I love, <laughs> but it did remind me of that crap film we went to see. Oh yeah, it was awful. I mean, the Dark Tower book series is amazing. I've read the first, I've nearly finished the second book. Um, and if people people haven't read The Dark Tower and they've just seen the film, um, mm. the book series is completely different. Like they, What they did with the film was they took little bits of the seven books, chucked them together, and they made a sort of film out of it, but it's not, it wasn't very good. Um, Are you only reading Stephen King this year? Well, I've read a few books that aren't Stephen King, but I don't know, I just... I'm obsessively going through Stephen King just now. I've got two yeah. in the go at the day. I'm reading one called Insomnia, and I'm reading one called uh, The Drawing of the Three, which is the second Dark Tower books. I will read, I mean, I have read about seven or eight other books that aren't Stephen King, but I'm right, right at this moment in time, I'm focusing almost primarily and entirely on Stephen King. Worst things you could do, especially during lockdown. That's fair. Uh, but anyway, we should leave you now, listener, because we've started having since we went on zoom we've started having substantially longer podcasts i know that's the problem we do it over when we're doing the anchor ones 20 25 30 minutes this has been 40 odd i mean it's been over 40 minutes each time we've done this yeah exactly so we won't take up any more of your time listener have a lovely week we hope you have the best one possible in the circumstances and we will see you next time Bye. bye everyone bye